So we pick up the story in John chapter 21, starting at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So we've already said that in this scene, right from the beginning, uh, when the disciples go out on the water and they fail to catch the fish and then this figure on the shore gives them directions, all of that is so redolent of a past event, harking back to something that they recognise from their past, maybe something familiar, something um, comfortable or comforting. If you were to have, having to write the score, the music to go behind this scene, if you were creating a film, I wonder what mood music you would choose. See, I think there's definitely something in this whole encounter that has the sense of nostalgia. As I say, they um, they were doing what was familiar. They were in a familiar place again. Um, they had that old industry, the fishing that they'd taken part in. They were reminded of their first encounter with Jesus. Their many meals with Jesus and conversations over the around the fire. You know, all of that would have been familiar and, and brought good memories with them. And Jesus in this encounter even calls Peter by his given name, the name that his parents gave him, Simon. He's not referred to as Peter, he's referred to as Simon, son of John. Perhaps going right back to the heart of who Simon was when Jesus first met him. So there's definitely, if you're going to choose a theme, a musical theme for this, there would definitely need to be something in the order of, of this sense of nostalgia and familiarity and good memories. A bit like if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, that haunting Shire music theme that comes through with, with Frodo and Sam when they're being particularly nostalgic or heroic, you get the, 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 the tune coming through. So there'd be that in there, I would think. But more than that, there's also something a little bit more poignant going on here. I mentioned about Jesus using Simon's original name, Simon, that is, instead of Peter. Now, that might have harked back to a time uh, before or reminding him of the time when he met Jesus for the first time. It might be going right back to the heart of who he is from the beginning. But I wonder if that that naming of him as Simon also raised any questions or concerns for Simon Peter. After all, Jesus, in John's Gospel, Jesus renames Peter almost from the word get-go. He, Jesus meets Simon, the fisherman, and almost immediately renames him and calls him Peter, the rock. 
And we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus went on to say that on this rock, I will build my church. And so was Jesus avoiding using his rock name, his church founder name? And why would that be? Perhaps for Peter, that was a little shocking, a little jarring. Maybe it raised questions about whether Jesus thought him fit for the job anymore. Maybe he was concerned and confused by this. We don't know. We don't know. I suspect that perhaps Jesus didn't want to load the conversation with the weight of that name, Peter, the rock. He didn't want it to become a rock around his neck or a weight on his mind or his conscience. He didn't want to add to the failings of the man by reminding him of the expectations upon him. I believe that's possible, Jesus, and knowing his compassionate nature. Whatever it is, it's interesting to ponder why did Jesus refer to him consistently as Simon, son of John, not Peter. So if you're going to choose mood music for this scene, perhaps as Jesus and Simon Peter walk away from the fire and along the shore and have this private conversation away from the others. And isn't that just so gentle and kind of Jesus? But as they're having this, perhaps the nostalgic and the familiar and the, the positive uplifting music might just change to something slightly more haunting, slightly more uh, discordant, perhaps awkward or wistful. There's certainly something about uncertainty in Peter's mind, I would think now. A remembering of the recent failure when he disowned Jesus those three times. And perhaps in Peter, a resignation. I know I failed. I know I'm not up to the job. I'm content simply to be one of the crowd, someone following Jesus or loving him, but clearly no one to be to be noticed. A resignation to the place that he felt his failure had put him. I wonder if some of that would be in the mood music that we would choose for such an occasion. So as they walk along the beach, Jesus has these three questions for Peter. Are they really three different questions? They're expressed slightly differently each time. But basically, they get to the heart of the matter. And as has been made of uh, many times, the three questions, some ways echo the three denials, the three questions that were asked of Peter at, uh, in the courtyard around another charcoal fire. Those questions about his allegiance or his association with Jesus. And each time he had said that he did not know Jesus. He was not one of Jesus' friends. He denied Jesus. And here come three questions that go to the heart of their relationship, as fractured and broken as it may seem. These three questions each deal with the denials that Peter um, made of Jesus earlier, only 10 days ago. So the first question that comes, do you love me more than these? Uh, some people think that maybe Jesus is referring to these as the fish, the, the whole fishing um, tradition that he had. Do you love me more than this old way of life? I'm not so sure that that's a very realistic way of interpreting this. There's also the question, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And I think that's far more likely. 
After all, it was always Peter who would push himself to the front and make those grand claims and those grand statements, or at least it was it was mostly Peter. Thomas had his moment, but Peter was the one who would launch out of the boat, who would speak out um, and confess grand things about Jesus and about himself and usually put his foot in it, quite frankly. The old Peter of 10 days ago would quite likely have said with great bombast, of course, I love you. I'm ready to die for you. In fact, that profession of his courageous love for Jesus was made only hours before he denied Jesus. This question is put to a Peter who is now chastened, who is humbled. And meekly, I think, Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's not comparing himself to anybody else. He's just receiving the gaze of Jesus directly at him and responding simply. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. There's no brash claims here. There's no rash promises. It's simple and it's full of humility. And it struck me as I read this and considered the, the humility of Peter at this stage after recognising his own failings. It's at this time that Jesus is able to say to him, feed my lambs. This Peter is someone to whom he could entrust the most vulnerable the lambs of his flock. This Peter, who had learnt humility, he was ready now to be gentle with others. So Jesus entrusts the lambs of his flock into Peter's care. He asks again, do you truly love me? And the translation that I have, the NIV, uses this word truly a couple of times, I guess trying to make the difference between the agape love, that self-sacrificing love that Jesus showed and, and, and Jesus asking of Peter. Um, and then in the final time that the question comes, it, it's the phileo love, the uh, family, the, the, the brotherly love. Some people make a big deal about these. Others say that actually the two words were interchangeable and were used by God of Jesus and uh, Jesus of others interchangeably at different times according to context. So whether you make something of that or not, the, the fact of the matter is the question comes again, do you love me? Yes, Lord. The answer is the same. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. It's not being goaded into saying anything greater, but Jesus knows therefore that Peter is capable taking care of his sheep. Take care of my sheep, he commands him. The last time, do you love me? Jesus asks. And this time, Peter is hurt, the Bible says. Uh, he's hurt, and, and in some translations it says he was grieved. And we don't know if that was grieved because he was wondering if Jesus didn't believe him and was doubting his love for Jesus or whether the realisation of that threesome, those three questions, echoing the three questions that led to failure, now three questions that lead to profession of love. I wonder if it was grief because he was reminded of his failings. I don't know where that grief comes from precisely, 
but there is certainly something going on in Peter's heart at this stage of, in the interaction with Jesus. Something is churning, something is happening. And Jesus has orchestrated it so that he can do that work in Peter's heart. And Peter's response is slightly different. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so he's given this final command, feed my sheep. So three questions, three professions of love and three commissions, jobs to do. It's really quite significant, this answer that Peter gives at the end because I think it shows just how far Peter's understanding has come, even in the last 10 days. See, he calls him Lord. You know all things. He, he's recognising the truth of what he'd said months and months ago when he'd brashly uh, confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here he is saying that as the Christ, as the son of the living God, you know all things. Nothing is hidden from you. There's a profession there of his understanding of Jesus' claim to be God. He understands finally, perhaps for the first time or perhaps this time more fully, the divinity, the fact that Jesus is not only a fantastic human being, but he is God in human form. And that's really significant too. I also love the fact that in this phrase, I, I, I hear words of submission, words of um, somebody who is laying everything out there and inviting Jesus, search my heart. You already know everything. So it's like saying, you know this already, take a look. You will see what's in my heart. And the corollary with that is not only will you see what's in my heart now, my love for you, but you will also know my past failures. I think he's understood that nothing is hidden from Jesus. And he is willing for Jesus to look on not only his heart of love, but also to see and to look on his failings. You know all things. You know how I failed you. You know how I denied you. You know how confused I get, how frustrated and how impatient. But you will also see and know that I love you. It's a beautiful confession of so much that has changed and deepened in his relationship with Jesus. Under this gentle interrogation, the truth remains that despite the failures um, and despite Peter's uh, limited understanding, his love is genuine, it's sure, and it is finally unshakable. And the brilliant thing is that we see in this interaction not only Peter's confession of his love for Jesus and, and in a sense you could extrapolate that and say that's, that's Peter's trust and belief in Jesus being on display but we also see Jesus's belief and trust in Peter. The proof that Jesus believes in Peter is that he is commissioned, he is commissioned to do work to inherit the role of the shepherd from Christ himself. You remember earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. And here he is saying to Peter, you now are to shepherd my flock. And remember, it is my flock, Jesus says, 
They are my lambs, my sheep. But he is confident enough in Peter to allow him to be the shepherd of Jesus' flock. And Jesus is confident enough in Peter to reveal even something of the suffering that Peter will endure for his sake. And yet still to offer that invitation, or is it a command? Follow me. So even knowing all of that, what would happen to Peter? Peter is invited to follow in that way of suffering to the ultimate point of sacrifice for Jesus' sake. And Jesus asks that of him, I think, because he can see that he can trust Peter, that his love and devotion commitment to Jesus now is strong enough. So we are looking at a conversation that works to restore what has been broken. On the surface, Peter and Jesus uh, were, were OK. You saw Peter rushing to see Jesus, who was so overwhelmed he wanted to get to Jesus from the uh, from the boat to the shore. Um, and Jesus clearly wanted to be with Peter. But there was still something else underneath that mood music of uncertainty and failure and resignation. Perhaps that mood music was still just playing underneath and needed to be dealt with. Maybe it was an awkward conversation, but I think it was also a gateway to freedom. Certainly the Peter who walked, began that walk away from the breakfast barbecue with Jesus was very different from the Peter at the um, Last Supper. But Jesus takes him on another journey. And by the end of this little walk and this chat, Peter is a freed man. He is free of the guilt. And at last he's able, he is free to be able to follow Jesus in, um, in all that Jesus has for him to do. So yes, it might be an awkward conversation, but it leads to such freedom. Now restoring what has been broken is, is a good way um, of understanding what's going on here. Sometimes we talk about this encounter as being Jesus forgiving Peter, but actually, it's not about Jesus forgiving Peter, because I believe that already happened. And we'll explore that a little in a moment. This is about restoring the relationship that was broken by a failure or by a, um, uh, a wrongdoing, a wrong against somebody. And it's more about reconciling. It's more about restoring and repairing what has been broken. And Jesus does this. Um, in various ways in this encounter. And it's worth looking at it to see what is, a, what is a Jesus way of restoring relationships that have been broken or damaged. Firstly, the one doing the restoring, the, the Jesus character, has an open and welcoming attitude. He's welcoming Peter into, into communion, into, into fellowship around the fire and having a meal. There's an openness and a welcoming attitude. And I believe that is the indication that forgiveness has already happened inside the person who was wronged. In order to be able to have this stance of openness and welcome towards the wrongdoer. But reconciliation and restoration needs to begin with that attitude of openness and welcome, which can only be achieved once we in our own hearts have forgiven the other person. 
And for some of us, in some situations, that's as far as we're going to get, particularly if the person who we are uh, working to forgive in our hearts does not want re reconciliation, does not look for forgiveness. There is very little else that can be done besides working on our own attitude to remain open and welcoming towards them and to pray for them. However, if both parties look, are looking to restore what has been broken, then courage is needed to face difficult issues. Yes, awkward as the conversation might be, without that conversation, there may be no gateway to freedom and a restoration of what has been broken. So much courage is needed even to embark on this journey of restoring. But God can give us that courage in his time. Jesus acted out of compassion and with great wisdom in his approach. I already mentioned how it's clear from, uh, from later on in this encounter that Jesus and Peter have walked away from the others. So it's not done in public, it's done privately. It's, it's showing great um, respect and grace towards Peter and opening up an opportunity and a, a context within which it is easier for Peter to have an honest um, conversation with Jesus. There is great compassion and wisdom in this approach. And I believe that if we are going to look at restoring relationships that have been broken or um, reconciling parties, then we can't get away from the need to pray, pray, pray and pray. Because what might be on the surface may not be the whole story, but God knows the heart of each individual involved. And getting to the heart of the matter is the most important thing. And we can only do that through prayer and opening ourselves up to God for God to be able to show us what is truly the heart of the matter. Now, Jesus could have begun the conversation by saying, Peter, do you remember um, back in that courtyard when you denied me? He didn't do that. That was compassionate and probably very wise. Peter could have got very defensive. But he prayerfully has got to the heart of the matter. And the question that he asks Peter is not, Peter, do you regret what you did? Peter, do you know how you failed me? Peter, do you, can you understand why I feel like this? It wasn't any of those things. He'd got to the heart of the matter, which was for Peter, was the need to confess his love and to be certain of his love of Jesus. That, that was the heart of the matter for Peter. And Jesus was able to go straight to the heart of the matter, I believe, um, because, you know, as God, but with God, he had been shown that that was what was needed. And we need to do the same. We need to pray to understand what the heart of the matter is. And finally, it's more than an academic exercise. It's not just about wordplay. It's not just about uh, manipulating a situation so that the right people say the right words or simply having said the right words, we shrug it off and say, oh, well, that's all right then. I'm sorry, I forgive you. Oh, well, that's all right. It's more than an academic exercise. And Jesus shows this by trusting Peter with a job, effectively to say, I do believe your answer. I do trust what you've said. And to show you that that relationship is restored, I'm going to trust you with something that is uh, is needful. It's not a token gesture. It's a really important task and it needs to be done by somebody I can trust. 
And so he gives Peter something very practical to do. Um, and it's a very earthy response. It is saying to him, Peter, I need you. I need you to be doing this. You are back in the game in a very real way. It's not just a shrugging off what had happened and then leaving him on the sidelines. It's actually restoring him to his call to be Peter, the rock on which he was going to build his church. And in these words, this metaphor, the shepherd or the under shepherd who is going to look after his flock. So it's more than words, more than just a formula and then a shrugging off and a moving on. There's actually something real about uh, how Jesus then was going to deal with Peter and expect what he was going to expect of him and, and how they were going to work out their relationship practically. Now, as I say, forgiveness is is one of the things that we are commanded to do. And it's not easy. Not easy at all for some of us and for some of the things that we feel wronged in. I said at the start that Jesus had already forgiven Peter. I believe he did that the moment he realised the cock had crowed. If he heard the cock crow, he would have known what had happened. And I imagine in Jesus' heart, he would have forgiven Peter at that moment. If not at that moment on the cross, he forgave Peter. And he could only have looked to be reconciled to Peter and to restore Peter and to bring healing and freedom to Peter because he had already forgiven him. So forgiving somebody doesn't re doesn't rely on the other person asking for forgiveness or even wanting it. Forgiveness is our attitude towards the one who did us wrong. It's our decision to let go of the need to get vengeance, to pursue uh, revenge or or to wish the person ill. It's our it's our decision to turn that around and let go of the need to pursue that person and run them to ground. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I think that is the key point. Vengeance is mine. But just as God has forgiven you, he doesn't pursue you any longer. To exact retribution or, or to bring about punishment for anything that you have done. Forgiveness means that we have let go of the need to punish. And that's the truth of it. When Jesus died in our place, God himself let go of his rightful claim to punish us, to pursue us for justice sake, because Jesus took it already. And as a result, God the Father can look on us and forgive us, not desire or need any form of retribution or vengeance. We have been forgiven by the Lord. And then he asks us to extend that attitude of forgiveness to others. Is this letting people off the hook to forgive them, even if they don't want to, even if they're not sorry for what they've done? Is that letting somebody off the hook? Not if we believe that Father God sees all and is just to the very last. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So is it letting someone off the hook? Someone who's very clever with words said, no, it's taking the hook out of your own heart not allowing your own desire for retribution to wither you inside and to keep you chained. It's your freedom as well in forgiving others. And for those that don't wish to be forgiven, as I said before, we can only really get to step one. 
working on our own attitude towards them. And that in itself may be enough of a lifetime's work for something that um, that you have been receiving uh, by way of wronged, being wronged by somebody else. Maybe all you can for a lifetime to work to get to the point of having that open and welcoming attitude of forgiveness towards that person. But as far as possible with one another, with our grievances big and small, Paul reminds us to bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And in case you aren't sure why, what justification there is for not wanting just, desert, just desserts for that person and, and, and actually aiming for forgiveness as part of the body of Christ, Paul reminds us, forgive as the Lord forgave you. We have been forgiven. And when we remember that we have been forgiven so much, it does actually help us to be able to forgive others or at least begin that journey towards that position, that attitude of forgiveness. So my parting question for you this evening is, if you are to forgive others, then think back to your own uh, walk on the beach with the Lord when you re realised that you were already forgiven and that you were restored, not out of the game, but very much loved and accepted, welcomed and commissioned by Jesus. Have you had your walk on the beach with the Lord? Perhaps some of us need to return there. Remember what it is to be forgiven. And then ask for help to extend the same attitude of forgiveness towards others. In Jesus name. Amen. Oh,